Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. Fulfilling the U.S. Constitution's requirement to count the population has been a complex operation since the first census in 1790. Individual census records from 1790 to 1940 have been maintained by the National Archives and Records Administration, as now, from that point forward, they are maintained by the U.S. Census Bureau. 1960 marked the birth of the first mail-out census. Earlier census that were conducted had used self-enumeration on a limited scale, but 1960 was the debut for this technique as a primary method for the collection of population and residential data. The United States Postal Service delivered questionnaires to every occupied household unit, and householders were asked to complete the questionnaire and then hold on to it for the enumerator to pick up. Today, we are talking about the upcoming 2020 census and the importance of an accurate census as it pertains to, in general, being accurate, but also specifically as it pertains to education and education funding. Today's guest is Jo Lynn. She is the Coalition Manager for Keystone Counts. Welcome, Jo. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here and telling us a bit more about the organization that you're with and how this coalition is working together to spread awareness and further the efforts of accuracy around the census. So I noticed that the two words that jump out in many of the descriptions around this upcoming census and the work that's being done are fair and accurate. So first, How can we ensure an accurate census? And what are the contributing factors to an inaccurate census outcome? So when I think about the census, it's an incredibly difficult undertaking. I mean, the Census Bureau is constitutionally mandated to count every single person in the nation. And if you've ever sent out, let's say, a mass email asking people to respond to a survey, you'll know that most people won't respond. And so trying to guarantee that every single person fills out the survey and fills it out accurately is a huge undertaking. So in my mind, there are a lot of contributing factors to why an account would be inaccurate. So um, housing stock changes, demographic changes, these are all contributing factors. Whether or not the Census Bureau is able to hire culturally competent enumerators to go door to door, the methods that the Census Bureau is asking people to respond, even the number of questions and how questions are worded can even discourage households from responding. And I know that the Census Bureau takes an entire decade to prepare for the decennial count every 10 years because they do this extensive testing to make sure that the survey that they put out will garner the highest number of responses. But the thing that I would most like to focus on, actually, is um, that there are demographics within um, our population that are historically undercounted. And so these are are populations that have, in the past, tended not to be counted in the census. And there are reasons for this. I think there is a a lack of information in terms of what the census is actually about. I think for some people, it's a bureaucratic government exercise that 
they don't see the need to participate in because they assume that the government already has the data. Mm. There's also the assumption that this data can be somehow misused. And we hear all the time the news about like data leaks of our most confidential information by various companies. And so there's also that reluctance to hand over personal data, especially when we don't know what it's being used for. And this coming census, I think, also raises additional uh, of these concerns because the, the bulk of the responses are expected to come in to the Census Bureau via an online questionnaire. Okay. So rather than the expected paper form, people are expected to go online and to fill out the questionnaire online, which I know then creates an additional barrier for people. So historically, populations of you know, immigrants and communities of color and children under 18 are most undercounted. But because this next upcoming census is moving online, it also raises concerns that rural communities that don't have access to broadband Mm -hmm. or populations that may may not be as digitally literate, let's say low-income households or seniors, are also facing these more systemic barriers for the first time. Mm, Okay. Now, you mentioned that it's going to be online. Is this the first year for this being conducted in this manner? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Because obviously the census and the means for collecting this information has changed over the years. And, you know, I mentioned the the first year that it was self-enumerated. And so... Does all of this method collecting play into the fairness aspect? What, where does that fair come in, a fair census? Explain you know, how or why that would be unfair. Is it in how it's conducted, or is it in how the information is disseminated and reported? I think that for this upcoming census especially, uh, there's been a lot of, I would say, political partisanship and an increased fear and distrust in the government. And so I think this um, exacerbates what is an already existing barrier for people Mm, to fill out the census. I mentioned before that, you know, people can be very reluctant to hand over their information, especially if it is to the government, Mm -hmm. especially if they don't understand what that data is being used for. And I think that part of my work in raising this awareness is to help families households, communities really understand what it is that their data goes into. And so when we talk about this fairness aspect, it's really understanding that census data underpins the decisions for resources to be allocated, federal funding to go uh, to states and then down to communities. And it also drives our political process in the way that congressional maps are done on the national level, but also how... um, within the state, our state political maps are drawn. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to talking about fairness, if there are communities that historically have been undercounted and then with this upcoming census's unique barriers then are further undercounted, it means that they are essentially invisible to not only the allocation of these resources and this political representation, but also when it comes to any other decision maker, like a philanthropic funder or a business leader making decisions on where to invest or what to build, these communities are being left out. Hmm. Okay, because of the inaccuracy of the information. Right. You mentioned, you know, people may be hesitant to give over their data. They're not sure what it's being used for. You know, what is it about? 
let's bring that question over to the education side of things, although I know that the data is used for many other areas and to inform other areas, but drill this down into the education sector for us. How does an accurate or inaccurate census impact education, and and how does that play into or inform legislation and funding? Absolutely. So there is a great resource that was put together by George Washington University. It's called the Counting for Dollars Project. And they recently have released updated information on the top 55 federal programs that derive their funding calculations based on census data. And so I looked at that list of 55 programs and found a couple that relate to education directly but also wanted to lift up the programs that tend to affect students and families. So when we're looking at the funding that goes directly to education, there's the Title I grants to local education agencies, which in fiscal year 16 amounted to $567 million. That's coming from the federal government to Pennsylvania. Mm, And then we have special education funding, which is... um, over 436 million. And then there's programs like the National School Lunch Program that receive over $369 million. And those are based on a single fiscal year. So you would have to really multiply those numbers by 10 to get an idea of the impact of the census has directly on education. Wow, those are some substantial numbers. Aside from straightforward education funding impacts, what are some of the other areas or programs that can be impacted or hurt if the census is conducted with inaccurate results? What are some of those other programs? So what was shocking to me getting into this work is that pretty much all the federal assistance programs that come into mind that families and communities rely on, whether it's uh, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, Section 8, Heating Assistance, just all the basic needs, Mm -hmm. these would be compromised with an undercount. And then uh, this would further drive the inequity in education, knowing that, you know, some students who have families uh, that rely on these resources would be showing up to school hungry Mm. and Uh, facing other barriers that would prevent them from learning, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I know that schools especially have been stretching their resources to help students overcome these barriers to learning. And so students coming in with these deficits would mean that schools would have to stretch themselves even further. Mm, Okay, so it goes broader and, and beyond just the basic education funding equation. Absolutely. Okay. So the last U.S. Census was conducted in 2010, of course. Um, do you have any sense of how complete and accurate these results were and how you know, accurate the count of the population of Pennsylvania was? And, and if it wasn't accurate, what were some of the factors that you know, caused that? So I dug a little into Census Bureau data, and for Pennsylvania, the undercount in 2010 was 3,000 households. So while that may not seem like a lot, when you multiply that by the funding lost over 10 years, that is actually a lot. Mm -hmm. But also I wanted to elevate that even though the aggregate of us as a state, the undercount was 3,000, that 
kind of hides the fact, actually, that certain counties are more disadvantaged than others because mm-hmm. there were certain counties that had much more severe uh, undercounts. So within that 3,000 households, a greater percentage of households came out of certain counties relative to others. I actually, okay. And when you look at it, certain counties actually had overcounts. Hmm. And then certain ca- counties had undercounts. Okay. Um, and part of the reason why Keystone Counts as a coalition is focused on 24 counties is because those 24 counties had uh, undercounts back in 2010. Mm. Okay. So you're really em- your emphasis is there in those 24 undercounted. Right. Got it. Okay. What efforts are being made to ensure accuracy and completeness? in this 2020 census. So, you know, what are tactics or efforts that are being employed to ensure that? So I know that the governor has convened a complete count commission, and then local municipalities and counties are also forming their own complete count committees. So all of these entities are encouraged with Census Bureau um, input, and the idea behind the, this state commission and these local complete count committees is to pull together all uh, the leaders of different industries to really strategize on um, a broad-based level how to raise awareness about the census and then hopefully also do some education and outreach. Okay. And how is Keystone Counts uh, working towards this overall effort, you know, as part of either advocacy groups or nonprofit organizations? How, how does Keystone Counts fit into that picture? So we specifically are a statewide coalition that is engaging nonprofit organizations, and that's because we see nonprofit organizations as the trusted messengers in the communities that have been undercounted in the past and are growing throughout the state. And so we are hoping that by engaging these nonprofits, they're able to reach communities in a credible way, and especially with the challenges facing the 2020 census, to really overcome those barriers of fear and distrust to get people to fill out the census where they might not understand what it means to them mm-hmm. or why it matters at all. Mm-hmm. We are also hoping that nonprofits through engagement in the Keystone Counts Coalition can also build out their civic engagement capacity. Mm-hmm. So ideally, nonprofits are undertaking this work not only through the census period, but also beyond. Okay. So whether it's registering their communities to vote or you know encouraging their communities to take other civic actions, that's something that we're helping to build the capacity for. Okay, so beyond the census. Right. Awesome. Okay. Is there any way that K-12 students have a role in this? So what I mean by that is, is there information that can or should be distributed at the school level? Is there education that should occur in the schools? And then how can those students be beneficial to their families and and help kind of bring that information back to their parents who may or may not be fully aware of what's going on? So when I think about the census, it is so important and such a huge undertaking that I do think that there is room for everyone to be involved. I think schools and students are especially going to be instrumental because schools, just like nonprofits, tend to be trusted sources of information. And schools also have reached through their students to all of those students' families. 
And I know and have heard from people that, you know, there are parents that will say, oh, well, I might like disregard a form, but Mm -hmm. if my child tells me like it's really important, then I'll do it. Right. And I also think that students, um, especially in immigrant uh, communities, tend to be the ones who are translating for their parents, especially Mm -hmm. if their parents are not completely fluent in English. Mm -hmm. And so given that language access is an issue with the census, I think students can be really invaluable in terms of translating for their parents. But Mm -hmm. also, since the census is online and uh, the younger generation tends to be more fluent with technology, I think kids will also be really helpful in that. In making that a comfortable experience, perhaps. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned the 10 years of preparation, and I, I guess it's funny that I didn't, that didn't occur to me that the U.S. Census Bureau has been preparing for the last 10 years. Do you know at all what that entails? Is that a look at messaging or how the census is conducted? What are the types of things that they might be looking at in that preparation? I think they do a lot that I, even as someone who's immersed in the census world, don't realize. Mm -hmm. But they do extensive testing. So um, with how the form looks, where the questions are placed, Mm. what words are used in the questions, all of that. Um, And I know that testing is done to try to increase response rates wherever possible. I also know that they do field tests, and those field tests are meant to replicate the national census, but in a targeted locality. So, for example, they conducted a test in Rhode Island, and they roll out the census as if it were happening on a nationwide scale. And so households receive the form, and then they can uh, respond to it. And so they they don't test it purely in a scientific way. They also do that real-world field Mm. test. Okay. Interesting. And so as far as bringing that information to the student population, what can school leaders and educators be doing across the Commonwealth to help support this? I think it's really important for school board leaders and other education leaders to be joining local complete count committees, if not pushing to start one. Mm-hmm. I also think that um, something that we, our coalition is pushing for and other leaders across the Commonwealth can also push for is the dedication of state-level funding to support census education and outreach efforts. So currently, we are pushing the state legislature to dedicate $12.8 million, or a dollar per person, towards census education and outreach. And they're currently in the budget process, and I know that it'll go until June. So there's certainly some time, but the, the time would be now to make sure that we have that public investment to make sure that the census count is accurate statewide. Okay. And you said that's a dollar a person. Yes. Wow. Okay. That, you know, when you boil it down, that doesn't sound like a lot. <laughs> In total, it is. Right. <laughs> but it doesn't sound that much. So if there are others who care about education funding, who want to be involved, what can they do? I think that um, if there are leaders or community members that are concerned and connected to a nonprofit organization that serves those historically undercounted communities, whether it's immigrants, people of color, children under 18. I think having those organizations join the Keystone Counts Coalition, it's certainly a first step to being part of the statewide coordinated effort to get out the count. I think also 
you know, sharing information within one's own social circles about why the census is important, Mm -hmm. and then um, also doing a little bit of education in terms of how the census is different this time around, and how it's important to make sure that um, even if you are able to fill fill it out, that those that you are in contact with are also able to fill it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there any place you would direct um, people who want to find out simply more information about the census and why it's important and all of the areas that it helps inform? Where should they go looking for that information? So our website, keystonecounts.org, actually contains um, a lot of information, and it's constantly updated with Uh, news articles about the census. So if people are interested, following our website would certainly be helpful. Great. So I want to thank you for being with us today and sharing all of this super important information and your insights on this. Thank you so much, Joe. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Listeners, I encourage you to go to our website at keyedradio.org for more information and resources supporting today's discussion. This is Annette Stevenson saying thank you for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.